Hey, Convergent Church, good morning. It's great to be with you. I'm excited to be with you. I'm excited to open up God's Word together. And if you're joining us for your first time, welcome. My name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church. And we're so grateful to have you with us. And if you don't know much about us, we're a group of ordinary, messed up people who struggle with real sin, real sorrow, real suffering, but believe in an extraordinary God who sent his son Jesus to this earth to save us, heal us, and make us whole. And we exist to ensure that everyone in Owasso has the opportunity to hear the good news about who Jesus is and all that he has done. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This morning, we're going to be continuing on in a sermon series we've titled The Value of Vision, where we've been looking at the vision frame of Convergent Church, looking at our vision, our mission, and our core values in hopes of getting us all on the same page and working towards the common goal of seeing all of Owasso one to Jesus. So week one, we simply began by talking about vision. We shared our vision statement. We shared the importance of why we need vision to know where we're going. We showed where our vision statement comes from scripture. Then week two, we talked about our mission, how we're going to carry out that vision together. And then last week, week three, we've pivoted to begin talking about our values. So while vision tells us where we're going and mission gives us our direction, our values are largely the means by which we will get there. So last week, we covered our value of the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Everything that we do as a church flows to and from the gospel. And today, we're going to be talking about our value of gospel community, which we would define in this way. Gospel community, driven by relationship, this community is founded in and sustained by the love of God. Because God loves and values his people, his people love and value one another. So the two big questions that we'll be examining today are, number one, why does community matter? And number two, what does that mean for you and I? How should that affect you and I? What are we supposed to be to one another? How should we incline our lives towards one another? Have you ever heard someone say something to the extent of, Christianity wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for all the church people. I've certainly heard it expressed from unbelievers, but I've also heard it similar sentiments from those who profess faith in Jesus yet abstain from involvement in any particular local church. And it's interesting to me. Earlier this week, I stumbled upon an article from the Pew Research Center. It's just a, uh, it's a, it's a nonpartisan think tank. And the article that I found was titled, Why Americans Go and Don't Go to Religious Services. I thought to myself, well, I lead aforementioned religious service. I'm a pastor. I'm a church planner. I guess I should be informed on the matter. Click. So I opened the article up. There were like 12 or 13 different sections with all sorts of figures and graphs and pie charts. And if you know anything about me, I had the attention span of about a squirrel. So I didn't put a dent in getting through all this research. But one thing that stuck out to me was this one particular statistic. When it talked about why people don't go to church, why people aren't a part of a church, 48% of professing Christians 
reported that it was because they didn't feel welcomed. They didn't feel welcome. Now, the message translation of that would simply read, I think church people suck. (laughs) The general consensus here is that some, even many, think the church, think biblical community is not worth being a part of because of the people who make it up. So why here at Convergent Church would we make one of our values community? Why would we make one of the six things that we're committing our lives to something that the world has a distaste for. While many look upon the gathered church in derision, we press in to incline our lives towards one another that much more. Why is this? Without further ado, let's, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be uh, in verses 23 through 25 this morning, where the author writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So diving right into our first question this morning, why does community matter? The author of Hebrews begins this section in verse 23 with the admonition for the Hebrew Christians to hold fast to the confession of their hope in Jesus without wavering. He leads them with an encouragement to persevere in the faith. Why? Well, the immediate context is that Hebrew Christians were being persecuted for their faith, right? They were being oppressed. They were being afflicted. They were being abused, and some were even being martyred. As a result, a fraction of the early church began apostatizing. What the heck does apostatizing mean? It simply means that they began denying their faith. They began denying Christianity. They began to disassociate themselves from the name of Jesus to avoid hardship. So the author of Hebrews charges them, persevere, hold firm to your faith. Because God is faithful to see you through whatever hardship may come your way. He's encouraging them in the truth that God is faithful. Then moving into verse 24, he tells them by what means, by what means they're going to be able to endure, how they can remain steadfast. Let's read those verses again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you catch that? The way in which we hold fast to our faith in Jesus without wavering is by valuing one another. It's by stirring up one another for love and good works, meeting together and encouraging one another. So why does community matter? Because community is a means by which we persevere in the faith. Community is a means by which we persevere in the faith. Now, it's important to note here that we are ultimately able to persevere because God is more committed to our salvation than we ourselves are. But get this, part of his ordained plan to accomplish that end is biblical community. 
Christians being together, doing life together, investing our lives into one another. So whether you like it or not, your salvation is a community project. Your perseverance in the faith and maturity is a group effort. Consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He continues on to verse 14. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, were an ear where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is written, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says it this way. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And lastly, Proverbs 27, 17 says this. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Guys, God made us. He made us for community. We were created to navigate the Christian life on our own. The Bible actually knows nothing of that sort. Rather, we've been given one another, each with different functions and with different strengths and with different weaknesses and different roles to carry out for the purpose of refining one another, persevering in the faith and ultimately giving glory to God. Community matters because God created us for it. He is the potter, we are the clay, and the potter uniquely crafted us in such a way that we actually need one another to function properly, to spiritually survive even, and to grow more and more into the image of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 puts it this way. Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God wants us to be together. He designed us to be in community with one another. Are we all seeing that here? Are we all on the same page here? If so, now let's go ahead and let's move on to our second question of the morning, which is this. Because community matters, what does that mean for you and I? Because community matters, what should our relationship with one another be marked by? How are we to incline our lives towards one another? What should this look like? There's a lot that I could say on this matter, but for the sake of our time here this morning, I just want to tease apart our text in Hebrews 10, uh, 24 and 25 in particular, and we'll see three things. We'll see three things that this passage calls us to. Number one, we are called to be intentionally focused on others. Number two, we are called to be intentionally present for others. And number three, we are called to be intentionally encouraging to others. So the first subpoint here, we are called to be intentionally focused on others. We see this in verse 24. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful and let us consider, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The phrase let us consider in the Greek means to consider attentively. It literally means to fix our eyes and fix our minds upon this end. It beckons deep contemplation. He says, let us consider how to stir up. Now, this phrase stir up means to stimulate. It means to instigate. It means to provoke. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Love meaning benevolence or goodwill. And good works meaning beautiful and noble deeds. When we put it all together, the author of Hebrews is calling us to fix our eyes on one another and carefully consider how we can bring about the best in one another. How we can activate one another to love more like Jesus and do that which is honorable and gives him the most glory. To value community is to be intentionally focused on the well-being and the spiritual maturity of others. And if that's not countercultural, I'm not, I'm not sure what is. After all, we live in a world that celebrates self-care, but mocks self-sacrifice. Make no mistake, we, we need to take care of ourselves physically, emotionally, and certainly spiritually. We need good rhythms of rest. We need healthy boundaries. We need time each day in God's word. But the end of self-care should be self-sacrifice. Biblical self-care produces self-sacrifice. Self-care that doesn't lead to self-sacrifice is self-centered, it's self-serving, and that is sinful. This is how God designed it to be. We give out of the abundance of what we have been given. We fill ourselves up to in turn pour ourselves out for the good of others. But sadly, that's 
seldom the case, right? We live in a world that says if it's not to your benefit, if it is not to promote your own advancement, if it doesn't ring the praises of your glory, it's pitiful. It's of no value. It's not worth investing in. But when we value community and when we strive to live out this calling to be intentionally focused on others, the the focus shifts from how can I make myself look great to how can I help those around me become great? It shifts from how can I make myself great to how can I help those around me become great? Any basketball fans out there? All right, we got like two and they're under the age of like 10, so... Well, you guys are my people, so this is directed to you. Um, This week, I watched a a, a new TV series on Hulu called Legacy, the true story of the LA Lakers. And if you don't know much about the Los Angeles Lakers, they're one of the most winning teams in NBA history. And in the series, it chronicles their success from 1979 uh, when Jerry Buss purchased the team to the present day. Since that time, the Lakers have won 11 championships. And they've had deep playoff runs on all the other seasons except for a small handful. Just think about it. The Lakers have been champions for a quarter of the last four decades. For the last four decades. When Jerry Buss bought the team in 1979, the team already had a superstar in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But they also had just landed an outstanding draft pick by the name of Irving Magic Johnson. And with that, Dr. Buss had one thing in his mind, and that was winning. Kareem was the tried and proven MVP veteran, but Magic was the new era. Magic was getting the most attention, both inside and outside of the organization. As a matter of fact, later that year, Magic Johnson would be signed to a $25 million, 25-year-long contract. It's crazy. It's crazy, which was unheard of at the time, and it far far surpassed anything that Kareem would ever make in his entire career. Now, this all could have been disaster. Two superstars, two egos, potentially two kingdoms being built. And then there was this lingering question of, well, whose team is it? Is it Kareem's team or is it Magic's team? But one day, Magic intentionally asked Kareem, hey, man, where do you like the ball? Where do you need me to get you the ball on the floor to score? Kareem told Magic, and Magic made it his prerogative to not focus on his own success, but to set Kareem up for success. Not to look to his own interests, but the interests of the team as a whole, because the reality is that it would take the whole team together, firing on all cylinders to achieve their mission of winning a championship, right? How many teams have had one superstar who put up 50 points a game, but actually never won, never achieved anything? And the rest is history. This squad would go on to not only win the championship that season, but to win it five times in the span of eight years. As a Christian, achieving success and personal holiness isn't enough. We can't just be concerned about the health and the success of our own spiritual rhythms. Listen, if you read your Bible every day for the last year, if you can articulate the relationship between each person of the Godhead, if you know all 95 theses from Martin Luther, but you don't know what your friends in this room need prayer for, 
something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Because the commission that our master has given us isn't go and make yourself great, but to go and make disciples of all nations. Our calling is to be intentionally focused on the well-being and spiritual maturity of our brothers and sisters in Christ, considering, considering how to stir them up to love and to good works. Yet I think if we're honest with, our, with ourselves, we're most often concerned for ourselves, right? That's the remaining sin in us that's yet to be conquered. And I say us because this certainly includes me. I can't tell you how many times someone has called me and said, hey, Pastor Dan, I really need help with this thing, with this area of my spirituality. If I have this thing going in my life and I need counsel today for this. And there's such a proneness in me to think, man, today's not really a good day. I've got a whole list of like 10 things to do on my to-do list and this wasn't one of them. Can it wait till tomorrow? I still have so far to go. We all do, and we need each other to get there. Our spiritual maturity and being others-focused never comes about by happenstance, but by intentional effort. Intentionally repenting, intentionally turning away from our self-centeredness and intentionally creating space in our lives for one another. My friends, God made us for community. And he has called us to not only look to our own good, but to look to the good of others. If I had to summarize this point in one sentence, I would say we are called to fix our eyes on others around us and carefully consider how we can help them to be more like Jesus because no one is more loving than Jesus and no one has done more good works than Jesus. Now let's continue moving on into verse 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So the reality is it's impossible. It's impossible to stir one up, one other up for love and good works when we're not actively present with one another. Here we receive the warning to not neglect meeting together, some are accustomed to do, if we want to persevere in the faith. Now, I want to hit this one from two angles. First, I'd like to address the presumption that many have wrongly made that a Christian can exist, persevere, and even flourish in their faith apart from being connected to the body of believers, apart from investing themselves in some local church assembly. And secondly, I'd like to address the way this verse is often misapplied or maybe underapplied by pastors endeavoring to encourage regular attendance to Sunday gatherings like this one. So first things first, can someone thrive in their faith apart from being in a local church? It's an unpopular opinion, so let me state it as delicately as I know how. No. <laughs> N-O. Maybe that wasn't delicate, but the answer is just no. We're literally told here that if we want to persevere in the faith and grow into the likeness of Jesus, we can't forsake meeting together. 
Now, I don't live under a rock. I understand that we have more access to the Bible and to great Bible teaching today than ever before in history. By a show of hands, how many of you are tracking along this morning uh, through a Bible app on your phone? Yeah, it's like over half the room, case in point. But even beyond this, there are endless resources right at the tips of our fingers. There are free digital Bible commentaries, podcasts, and sermon audio from some of the most brilliant theological minds, not only of our day, but of the last 2,000 years. You can read Augustine from the 6th century. You can read you know, Luther and Calvin from the Protestant Reformation in the 15 and 1600s. You can stream sermon audio from the likes of Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott, who passed away decades ago. Not to mention the thousands upon thousands of churches who live stream their Sunday gathering each and every week. And in light of this, I recently had someone critique me for saying that their watching sermons online wasn't a substitute for being actively involved in a local church. They said to me, so let me get this straight. You're trying to tell me, in more or less words, that God is limited by time and space. I'm not buying it. You're saying that I can't grow in my love and knowledge of God from my couch on a Sunday morning? To which I replied, no, of course I'm not telling you that. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. I'm just saying that you can't be discipled through a TV screen because a TV screen can't tell you when you're doing it wrong in real time. Guys, if being a, a healthy Christian was merely a matter of theological aptitude or intellectual assent, of course you could be a healthy Christian apart from the church. But as we've readily seen throughout the scriptures this morning, there's a lot more to it than that. The author of Hebrews is telling us that brilliant, persevering faith is burst out of the context of community, not anonymity. Persevering faith is birthed in the context of community, not autonomy. So we must be present for one another. Now, I know I've said the phrase one another a lot this morning, but the Bible says it even more, 59 times to be exact. And I don't have the time to share all of them, but let me share just a few with you. Love one another. We'll have this on the screen behind me. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. And the list goes on and on and on. These are the traits that mark a healthy Christian. And you can't do these things apart from intentionally being present with others. That is to say, you can't one another yourself. You can't one another yourself. Well, I guess maybe you, you can, but you could, you'd probably land yourself in a psych ward somewhere. Um, not to mention, remember the text that we read in 1 Corinthians earlier about us being one body made up of many parts? What happens when one body part is removed from the whole? Right, when somebody has to have a body part amputated, what happens to that body part? Does it still have life after being removed from the whole? 
No, it withers away and it dies. It's impossible to persevere in the faith apart from biblical community. And it's impossible to be focused on others while neglecting to meet together. It's an oxymoron. Also, I'm pretty sure that every cult that's ever been started has been started by some guy in the mountains who said, it's just me and Jesus and all the other Christians are wrong. Now, I've, I've, feel free to fact check me on that. I've watched a lot of Netflix documentaries, so I feel like I'm pretty well read on the matter, but I could be wrong. Now, let me speak to how pastors can often misapply or underapply this text. When Sunday church attendance starts to inevitably dwindle during the Michigan summer months, right? Like the two months when it's like 70 plus degrees and sunny outside or in the dreariness of winter, like days like today, I'll see a lot of my pastor friends drop this verse on their Facebook timeline about not neglecting to meet together. And at best, it stems from a genuine concern over their congregation's spiritual, spiritual well-being But at worst, it's a ploy to simply guilt the butts back into seats so they have an audience to speak to on a Sunday morning. At any rate, most often I see this verse used to to advocate for regular attendance at Sunday worship. And I love our Sunday gatherings. I love meeting together here at Convergent Church. And if you haven't already made it a priority in your life to say, you know what, Sunday's a non-negotiable. I'm gonna be with my church family. I would encourage you to do so, that we would prioritize this. But to stop there would actually be an under-application of the authorial intent. Let's consider the context, the time in which this was written and the people to whom it was written. First century Christians, first century Hebrew Christians. And in Acts 2, we're presented with a picture of the early church's spiritual rhythms. Turn there with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and in verse 42, we read this. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Man, that sounds incredible, doesn't it? For the better part of the last 2,000 years, the, the church, the local church has been striving to recapture some essence of this life that was described in Acts chapter 2. Because we want to see signs and wonder. We want generosity. We want unity. And most importantly, we want to see the people of Owasso saved by Jesus day after day after day, don't we? But consider their pattern. Where in these five or six verses do we see, and they went 
to church and were present with one another for approximately one hour and 30 minutes every Sunday. You see, this is where we get it all wrong. We want the supernatural. We want unity. We want radical generosity. We want to see revival in our day. But if we're honest, we want it on our own terms, don't we? We want the same results as the early church, but we don't want the means through which God worked to produce it. Why? Because we're selfish. Because if we're honest with ourselves, that sounds like a lot of personal time and sacrifice, doesn't it? It's a lot of time. It's a lot of sacrifice. Through the spark of this movement in the early church, Christianity went from being an obscure Jewish cult in the Middle East with about 120 followers to what it is today with billions and billions of people across the planet following after Jesus But they didn't meet for just one day a week for an hour and a half at church. That wasn't their pattern at all. Rather, they were a community of believers on mission together whose lives were totally interwoven, marked by radical, radical self-sacrifice. Did they meet on Sundays? Presumably. We see that in the first couple of verses. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayer. Now that pretty well describes what we're doing here, right? Reading through the writings of an apostle together, fellowshipping, we're gonna break bread together shortly during communion and praying. But what about the rest of the time? What do they do the rest of the time? Oh yeah, day by day, they attended the temple together and they met in each other's homes. When was the last time you had someone from church into your home? Just a question. We want gospel movement without gospel means. That's to say, we want to see God do something, but not at the cost of our own time, treasure, and talents. We want revival But if we're honest, maybe we don't want community. Man, guys, can we commit to to trying to grow in this as a church? To be intentional, to be intentionally connected to one another outside of the context of a Sunday morning? Maybe even inconveniencing our lives for one another and at times for the enrichment of someone else? Listen, God has given you something special God has given each and every one of you something special that somebody else in this room needs. Maybe it's your spiritual gift. Maybe it's just a faithful friend. Maybe it's an encouraging word. We are many members together making up one body. We need each other's presence because together we can accomplish more. Now, rounding out uh, our third point here, we are called to be intentionally encouraging to others. Let's jump back to Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
So we're to focus our eyes on the needs of others. We're to be present for others. And lastly, we are to be encouraging to others. Now, in the introduction, I brought up that statistic about 48% of uh, Christians who say they don't go to church attribute it to not feeling welcomed. And I'm, sure, I'm certain that if we were to question each individual further, there would be a vast array of differing reasons as to why they didn't feel welcomed. Certainly, some of those things would have been self-inflicted, but I'm sure that there are many, many things that were also inflicted by others. It doesn't matter. That number is just as staggering and is just as problematic to me either way. And this verse had me thinking earlier this week. What Christians in my life do I feel encouraged by? I'm going to ask you that question. What Christians in your life do you feel encouraged by? Now, I want you to contrast that number with the number of Christians that you know. Contrast that number by the number of Christians that you know. Do the scales balance out? Or... Are they out of balance? Mine don't balance out. So why is that? I recently had a conversation with a friend um, who just very vulnerably shared with me that when he was growing up, his dad never once told him that he loved him. It was heartbreaking. His dad was a, a strong man. His dad was a tough man. His dad was actually a, a building contractor. He worked hard with his hands. He made an honest living. He provided for his family, and he even trained his sons up in the trade. But he never once told them that he loved them. And from his teens into his adult years, my friend lived a pretty rough life. He didn't always make the best decisions at a young age when he was still a high school student. He began abusing substances. He would go on to be married and then divorced several times. And with each misstep, each twist and turn in his story, his dad was quick to reprove him for his stupidity and for his foolishness, to let him know just how much he had messed up. It made for a pretty rocky relationship, and it wasn't until my friend was in his 40s and his life began to level out that he had the courage to ask his dad, how come you never told me that you loved me? To which his dad replied, well, you knew I loved you, didn't you? I didn't have to say it. I, I guess I showed it in my own way, right? I taught you this trade. I told you when you were doing things wrong. It really was a tear-jerking story of a broken man trying to earn the affection of his father when in the end, his father thought he had expressed it in his own way, but he never gave voice to it. I can't help but wonder if this isn't how we most often interact with one another in the church. Why we come together each Sunday for an hour and a half, we make small talk, we ask how things are going, we lie, we say everything is good. <laughs> we lie, we say everything is good, and then we go our separate ways until the following Sunday. But then at some point, somebody falls into a pattern of unrepentant sin, and in turn, we attempt to demonstrate our love for them by confronting and by correcting their sin, only for it to be received as being harsh and punitive. And then they leave the church. Could, 
it be that the reason why so many people feel unwelcome in the church is because while we're great at correcting, we're just as bad at encouraging? My friends, an essential part of stirring others up to love and good works is regularly encouraging them in the right way. This is so critical. It's essential. We need the affirmation and we need the assurance of one another. Right? The world tries to tear us down. Our sinful flesh tries to bring us down. Our shame from past failures steadily weighs us down. Where can hope be found in the truth of the gospel and in the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ that he who promised is faithful. So as the people of Convergent Church, can we just resolve that for every one time we need to lovingly and patiently correct someone in their sin and restore them? Can we just purpose that we have 99 deposits of encouragement already in them to draw from? Because taking withdrawals from an empty account is always painful. Because let me tell you from experience, when you've committed your life to equipping, building up, and encouraging another brother or sister in Christ, when the time inevitably does come that correction is needed, and it will for each and every one of us, man, when you put those deposits in, it's received with gratitude because they know that you wouldn't speak it, that they know that you wouldn't put yourself in that uncomfortable position if it weren't coming from a genuine place of love and concern for them. Wrapping up, let's, let's read this text one more time together. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I know we've packed a lot into this morning, a lot of heavy stuff. So can I end with a quote from Joe Dirt to bring some levity to it all? So if you don't know who Joe Dirt is, he's a character played by David Spade in a movie of the same title. It's probably not a movie that I should recommend on the record. But to say it in a word, Joe Dirt's life was marked by being the wrong person in the wrong place and at the wrong time. Joe Dirt is a janitor with this epic mullet hairdo, acid-washed jeans, and a dream. A dream to find his parents who, who forgot him at the Grand Canyon when he was eight years old. <laughs> and as his wandering, misguiding search takes him from one misadventure to another, he inevitably finds his way to Los Angeles, where a shock jock radio host by the name of Xander Kelly brings him onto his show, only to insult him because he thought it would make for good content. And when Xander Kelly sees Joe equipped with his mullet and his mutton chops and his denim jumpsuit with the sleeves cut off, <laughs> Xander calls him some pretty mean names, critiquing the way that he looks. And then Joe responds with this. Is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back making fun of poor little old Joe Dirt? And as funny as that comeback is, I can't help but think and make a correlation with the end of our text here, right? We are to stir up one another, not forsake meeting together, to encourage one another. It says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews is speaking of one of two things here, either the physical return of Christ or our passing away in this life and seeing Jesus in glory. He sees this day coming for each and every one of us. 
when we'll have to give an account. And he challenges them, so how much more ought we be intentionally focused on others? How much more ought we commit to meeting with one another? And how much more ought we to encourage others? The way you have lived your life up to this point in light of these commands, is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? With the last day in view, how have you stewarded your time and your treasure and your talents that Jesus has given you? Has your life been committed to and marked by community and the perseverance of his people? Or is there maybe some room for adjustments to be made? My friends, may we live each day in light of our last. Now, I know it's a little bit long-winded this morning, so let me leave you with just a few next steps to consider. The first one is this. I would encourage you to become a member of Christ's body. Now, what does this mean? At the end of the day, going to church, doing good things, being a good person, none of these things give us right standing before God. Doing good things, being a good person doesn't get any one of us into heaven. We become a member of Christ's body by placing all of our faith in the finished work of Jesus and looking at ourselves and saying, I can't make myself holy and realizing I can't achieve God's righteous standards, but then surrendering to the truth that because of God's great love for you, he sent Jesus to this earth to live the perfect, holy, sinless life that you were unable to live and to die the sinner's sinner's death on a cross that you deserve to die. This is the gospel that by placing our faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we inherit eternal life and our record of debt is completely canceled. So I would ask you this morning, are you a member of Christ's body? Because you don't become a member just by coming here on Sundays, but you become a member in placing your faith in Jesus alone. And if you've never done that, find me afterwards. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. But maybe you have placed your faith in Jesus, right? Like you are a member of the universal church, all Christians of all time. I would encourage you to plug into a local church body where you can fulfill these one another statements that we just talked about this morning. Now, another next step would be this. Ask yourself this question. Write it down. Write down the answer. Who can you pray for this week? And don't just ask yourself who you can pray for this week. Actually purpose to pray for them. My friend David Yoon is really good at this. Every week he texts me and he says, hey, brother, how's everything going? Thinking about you. How can I encourage you? What do you need prayer for? Be a David. Next, who can you invite into your home this week, right? Who can you have fellowship with this week? They're not here this morning, but Jeff and Rose Klein, they're really, really good at this. They're like, hey, just come over, just hang out. It's fine. The kids are going to run around like crazy. We're going to cook some great food. We're going to have some great drinks, and we'll just hang out until like two o'clock in the morning. It's awesome. I'm really tired afterwards, but it's awesome. Be a Jeff and Rose. Who can you encourage this week? My mom, I'm going to brag on my mom. My mom, Darlene, is really good at this. She's really good at finding ways. Yeah, Rose is clapping back there. She's really good at finding ways to encourage other people. Be a Darlene. Also, ask yourself this. Who needs what I have? 
whatever your spiritual giftedness, whatever your natural abilities and talents are, because I assure you there's somebody in this church that needs what you have. They need your prayer. They need your time. They need your encouragement. And then this one is hard, the final step. What changes need to be made in your life to more fully invest yourself into biblical community? Beyond just attending church on Sunday mornings, what changes need to be made in your life to more fully invest yourself in biblical community? Listen, community moves our mission forward as a church. It'll help us fulfill the vision for God's kingdom to come to this city. Community matters to God. Community matters to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The question then is this, does it matter to you? Does it matter to you?